0: And this evening we'll be looking at the first chapter of Luke. So turn with me there to Luke chapter 1. And we'll start in verse 67. Luke chapter 1, verse 67. And and we're going to be reading... Through to the end of the chapter to verse 80, the song of Zechariah, also known as the Benedictus. Let us read. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. That we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit and he was in the wilderness until the day of His public appearance to Israel. Let us pray. Our good and gracious God, we come before You to worship and adore You as You are revealed to us in Your Word. Grant to us Your Holy Spirit. Lord, grant unto me utterance and grant a hearing ear and soft hearts unto Your people that we may be taken up With the glory of Christ, bless the meager efforts of your servant. And we will thank you, God Almighty, in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So the portion of prophecy that I just read to you, it denotes a major shift in the history of redemption Zechariah was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He himself was standing on the threshold of the dawning of the new. The beginning of this chapter, I'll just give a quick recap for introduction for some of the children here and those who may not be familiar with it because there's a lot that happens in this very long chapter of Luke uh, chapter 1. The beginning of this chapter introduces us to Zechariah, telling us that he is a priest after the Levitical order. He had a wife named Elizabeth, but the two of them had no child, for Elizabeth was barren. And at this time, they were both advanced in years. Well, the time had come when Zechariah's priestly division was called upon to serve in the city of Jerusalem. Now they had a custom in the priesthood to cast lots to see who would minister in the temple of Jerusalem. This was a very honorable and sacred privilege for any priest. And the lot was cast and Zechariah was chosen to minister in the temple. He would enter into the temple at Jerusalem and perform the ceremonial rite of offering up prayers of incense during the hour of incense before the Lord. This was the privilege of a lifetime. This was likely the pinnacle of his career and perhaps even the most important day of his life. The day where he would enter into the sanctuary and stand before the Lord and offer the prayers of the saints. Well, as he performed this duty, something very unexpected happened. The angel Gabriel appeared to him. The angel Gabriel had a message from God saying that his barren wife Elizabeth would conceive in her old age and bear a son the angel commanded him that he should name his son John and told him that this child would be a very unique person indeed this child was to be the for this child was to be the forerunner of the lord the one foretold of by the holy prophets this wonderful news must have been Too incredible for the humble priest to believe. So he questioned the angel, how could these things be? And as he does so, he is struck mute. This, his tongue, was made to be dumb. This was to be a sign, in fact, to confirm the verity of the message the angel had brought to him, as well as a mild judgment for his unbelief. He was to remain mute until this word given by the angel was fulfilled in the birth of his son. Meanwhile, the angel Gabriel paid a visit to a young virgin named Mary, who at the time was betrothed to a man named Joseph, both of them being of the tribe of Judah, descendants of David. Now, I trust we are very familiar with the glad tidings the angel brought unto the virgin, that she should conceive and bear a son, and that this son her child's name shall be called Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins, and inherit the everlasting throne of David. Now Elizabeth and Mary, we find out, we're actually very close relatives, so Mary pays Elizabeth a visit, for she had heard that she was also with child. The Lord had performed a miracle and opened her barren womb. These two women, and surely the whole village with them, were discussing and celebrating the spectacular thing that God was doing in their midst. At this time, the Holy Ghost was very present. And both women were actually divinely inspired and uttered hymns of holy joy. After Elizabeth's full time had come and she delivered herself of the child, he was brought to be circumcised on the eighth day, according to Jewish law. And after some confusion and excited debate about what the child's name should be, mute Zecharias takes a writing tablet and asserts this, that his name is John. This is, an, this is his name, and it is not up for debate According to the command received by the angel in the temple encounter, upon seeing his son come into the world, the unbelief of Zacharias had become faith. He now fully believed and understood the word of God as he never had before. Suddenly his mouth was opened. His tongue was loosed. The spirit of prophecy came upon him. The Holy Ghost fell upon him. And he erupted into this glorious hymn of praise, celebrating the wonderful activity of God, our Redeemer, that we have open before us here this evening. So, as we begin our exposition of this prophetic hymn, I've divided it up like this there's three sections. First, we'll see a celebration of Messiah's coming. Second, the essential nature of Messiah's kingdom. And third, the prophetic preparatory ministry of Messiah's precursor. So, first, we'll look at verses 68 to 70 as the celebration of Messiah's coming. This celebratory hymn immediately takes flight and ascends into the stratosphere because it is fueled by praise and thanksgiving. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. The word we find here rendered as blessed, it denotes a deep sense of reverent adoration for the Holy One. He extols and magnifies God's grace with a grateful heart, being being filled with Heavenly joy here. He blesses God from whose fullness and completeness we receive joy. Then we move on. We will see that Zechariah invokes the personal covenantal God of Israel. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Well, this brings up a question Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yea, of the Gentiles also, since God is one. He is the Lord of the whole earth. But he had a peculiar covenantal relationship with Israel. God, in fact, adopted Israel as a son and gave himself to this particular people by a covenantal bond of allegiance, as we're familiar with. And throughout the Old Testament period, God gave special divine revelation and manifested peculiar power and favor to and through the Hebrew people. Romans 3 says, The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And later, he says, To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all blessed forever. Amen. So Israel was the avenue through which God's purposes in redemptive history were carried out. Therefore God is rightly called the God of Israel. He revealed himself substantially through this nation, through this people. They were a special and privileged people. Indeed, they were God's very elect. Certainly, Zechariah was happy and grateful to be of this blessed seed that was called after the name of God. So then, how do we, who are Gentiles by birth, Learn to rejoice in this God of Israel as Zechariah, a Jew of the tribe of Levi, did. Well, first of all, there were many Israelites who never tasted the true blessedness of God. We read in Romans 9 that not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. It is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise. The apostle also tells us, No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And again in Romans 4, The purpose was to make Abraham the father of all who believe. The Lord Jesus Christ himself made this distinction known in his own ministry. In John 1, he said of Nathanael, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. The Lord God of Israel We know, brothers and sisters, we can testify to it. We've experienced it and seen it in our own day. He has a people of every kind who are circumcised in heart and who believe in Him. And of them He has created a heavenly nation with a new Jerusalem. Therefore, are we constrained to bless the Lord God of Israel, invoked by this ancient priestly prophet, rejoicing in the long-expected advent of Messiah. So now we approach the very heart of the celebration. In verse 68, for He has visited and redeemed His people. Now the word that is used for this visitation has more meaning attached to it than we can see on the surface. He's not saying like as if We were to pay a visit to a friend to just check in on them. He's not just checking up on his people. From this word, we actually derive the English word episcopacy, which basically is understood as government. Uh, The idea is that God has first inspected the situation and he comes now to act accordingly to what he deems fit. He has taken stock, if you would, and now his activity flows directly out of the need which he has perceived. For example, it says, if you were to visit a win- a widow to bring consolation to her, you don't just go to see her. To, you don't just go to a grieving person to check in on them. But no, you go with the perp- recognizing their need. You go with the perfect, the purpose to give them comfort or relief, or as the National Guard visits to bring relief to a crisis zone. This kind of visitation, episcamato, can be seen in Exodus chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. You don't have to turn there, I'll read it to you. But the Lord says to Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them. See that the visitation is in direct response to God seeing His people in their miserable condition. In other words, it's a responsible visit. He takes responsibility On himself to bring relief to his people. He beholds their condition and their awful state, and he says, I will visit them. He comes with a purpose. This also is a gracious intervention. In it, God's free loving kindness is displayed. It says, when Joseph, by faith, prophesied of the exodus and gave commandment concerning his bones in Genesis 50. He says, "I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that He swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob." And nor was it any less a miraculous inter- a miraculous intervention than the time when the Lord visited Sarah, as He had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as He promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age. Yea, this visitation that we read of in the text is doubly gracious because it involves the fulfillment of greater promises. It is twice the miracle because not one but two wombs here are supernaturally opened as we saw in the introduction. Now, at this point... I'm persuaded that for many long months, as Zacharias' tongue was, gri- was gripped with dumbness, Zacharias was quietly poring over the Scriptures, meditating on them day and night. Doubtless, he had listened to much of that holy conversation between Mary and his wife, Elizabeth. I do not think for a moment that he would have been ignorant of the prophecy of Isaiah that said, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and shall bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. I say, when he says God has visited, he must have known that the incarnation was complete He must have known that God had taken flesh upon himself and had himself been was coming into the world through the portal of the virgin's womb. He must have known that this gracious visitation involved the incarnation of God's only begotten son. God had come down into the world. And being sure that the Lord had come, Zechariah saw redemption as already accomplished. He has visited and redeemed his people. As the Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot save, so Messiah's coming spells out redemption from misery and bondage by an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment for his people. As... Far as Zechariah is concerned, God's people have been redeemed. So great is his confidence in God. What confidence! What joy filled his heart! What an example of faith! God merely took the very first step into the world, and Zechariah recognized it's as good as done. No one can thwart His purposes. No one can stop Him. His people are redeemed. We proceed now to observe the following rich remark in verse 69. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David. As He spake by the mouth of His holy prophets of old. Now it's very fitting what we heard from the public reading of Scripture concerning God's faithfulness in preserving the Davidic line and raising one up from that household. Here, um, Matthew Henry gives fuel to devotional thought. He says concerning this horn, that this horn denotes three things. First, it is a horn denoting it as a high salvation. It is one honorable and full of dignity. It is one raised up above its peers. It is one resplendent with the majestic honor of God Himself. Second, it is a plenteous salvation. It is a cornucopia, a horn of plenty filled with salvation, abundant and full of salvation that can never be exhausted. Thirdly, it is a powerful salvation affecting salvation with irresistible force, which no foe can withstand. God has raised up this horn of salvation for us in David's house as a banner and signal of salvation as he spoke by the prophets. Here I'll quote Isaiah 1110. In that day, the root of Jesse... Who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. A signal of what? A signal of salvation. A signal of redemption. But in the text I just quoted you, the prophet said the root of Jesse, which was David's father, which points to the obscurity of Christ's coming. He did not come in the pomp and splendor of a king. But he came out of obscurity. He he came out of Bethlehem. Though you be little among the nations. Zechariah knew that Mary and Joseph were descendants of King David. But at this time the royal line was nearly lost in obscurity. And all but forgotten. But the Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body, I will sit on your throne. There will I make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. Psalm 132, as we just heard. So, we've seen already some of the prophets' testimonies that Christ would come of David's line. And here we see it fulfilled. So suffice it to say that we have an abundant testimony to assure us that this is no novel idea of Zecharias Or a just so happenstance that the virgin's child would be of the Davidic line. But it teaches us that God is indeed faithful in fulfilling his word. And carrying out His sovereign purpose to the end. How often have we seen this truth? Weekly. Service by service. Every time a man stands up here. That we come back to this. Because we believe in the covenant God. Who is robed in faithfulness. How slow we are to believe His word. Brethren, His word will not fall short. His word is sure and steadfast. On His word we stand to the end of the age. So, we have seen Zechariah's celebration of Messiah's coming. God visiting and redeeming His people and raising up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David. Let us move on now to the second division and discover what is the essential nature of Messiah's kingdom. Verse 71 to 75. So God has visited, bringing redemption with Him in this horn of salvation He has erected for us in the house of His servant David. This coming one shall be the king that sits on the Lord's Holy hill. Well, naturally, a king has in possession a kingdom. And that kingdom consisting of certain subjects, that is, people. So we gather from our text that a king is coming and his subjects will be first a redeemed people. Verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. So the first essential element of Messiah's kingdom is that it consists of redeemed subjects. Now at the time of this prophecy, it was common thinking amongst the Jews that a Messiah was expected to come and deliver them out of the hands of their political adversaries. They made this fatal flaw in interpreting the events of the Old Testament, such as the Exodus and the raising up of Judges, and the turning again of the Babylonian captivity, as well as the kingdom prophecies, as pointing to a temporal deliverance. They saw national sovereignty as an end in itself. They thus interpreted the covenants that they would have dominion in Canaan and live prosperously. The Jews were currently under the yoke of the Roman Empire And they sought a Savior who would overthrow this political superpower and grant national liberation. But we saw in the public reading that they had much deeper problems than that, did they not? The Jews that we read about in the Old Testament had the same hearts that we read of of the Jews in the New Testament. And brethren, in our natural condition, we have the same heart as they This fatal misinterpretation of the scriptures led them into self-deceit as it was due to their blindness concerning their real need. Their need is the same as ours is today. Our most urgent need is not political reformation. Our most urgent need is not Judeo-Christian legislation. But our need is a savior to save us from our sins. A messianic king to tear down strongholds of wickedness. To spoil the powers of darkness and triumph over them gloriously. We need one who can overthrow the powers of evil which hold captive the souls of men with a death grip. Zacharias was a spiritual man. And being filled with the Holy Ghost as he prophesied, I am sure that he is speaking of spiritual enemies. With eyes of faith, he saw beyond politics and blessed God that Christ would come to set at liberty the souls of men that are destined for hell. Christ, discussing this very principle with the Pharisees of the day, said, Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Your true bondage is not that of the Roman yoke. Your true bondage is that you are bound by sin and iniquity. You are the servant of Satan. You are of your father Abraham. Uh, You are not of your father Abraham. You are of your father the devil. This is why God visited us in Christ to tread our iniquities underfoot, to crush the head of the serpent in us. Thus, the messianic realm consists of subjects saved from their enemies, redeemed from their sins and from the power of the serpent. We will next consider the fact that that Messiah's kingdom is covenantal in nature. Verse 72 and 73. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham. To grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. See that the mercy In verse 72, we have thus far been expounding the visitation and redemption of our God in Christ. This is the same mercy that was promised to the fathers. Also, we are told that this salvific mercy is performed in remembrance of the Abrahamic covenant. So, by God's help, let us try to discern discern the significance of this. And I hope this makes sense because in my preparation yesterday, this is where I had to tear out about two pages of my notes because I realized I might be a heretic. So I want to tread lightly and in fact it helped me cut down a good portion of the sermon. So I hope this will be a blessing as we consider that Messiah's kingdom is that Messiah's kingdom is covenantal in nature. I think we can see that the Mercy and grace of God, which was the hope of the patriarch's salvation, as well as our own, is now fully realized in the Messiah's coming. So then, even in their departed state, that is the fathers, the patriarchs, they're dead and passed away, having set aside their earthly tabernacles. They even now share in the joy of His appearing And are made partakers of that blessing. Because this is the fulfillment of the mercy promised to the fathers. That's as far as I'm going to press that issue. But it also teaches us again that God was faithful in performing what he had promised long ago. But how is this covenant God made to Abraham? a significant part of the essential nature of the Messianic kingdom. Well, we know that the Lord promised to Abraham that his physical offspring would multiply greatly. And of them the Lord would create a great nation, even Israel. This Israel would inherit the land of Canaan and dwell therein. Now their comfort and longevity in the land would be based upon their adherence to God's law. And this, I think I can refer you back to last week's sermon that Brother Austin gave us really laying out beautifully for us how that through obedience the children of Israel were granted covenant blessings. They were granted military conquest and victory. Uh, they, They took over the promised land. And He showed us that this is typological of the Messianic Kingdom. For our Messiah King has perfectly obeyed, wherein Israel did not. And now He is to inherit all the nations." Even more, he is to inherit the universe as a covenantal reward. But the covenant blessing of Israel in possessing the land demonstrates God's ability and covenant fidelity to make the enemies of Christ his footstool. Because the children of Israel were able to conquer their enemies in Canaan. Not by their own strength, not by their own military might, but because God Almighty in response to their repentance and revival of religion amongst them, the Spirit comes and grants unto them military conquest. This was God demonstrating His faithfulness to the covenant as Austin taught us last week that God could have forgot all about it and probably nobody would have even batted an eye, but he could not go back on his word. But another promise actually was secured by Abraham himself. And that was that God would bring the Messiah from his loins. And Messiah would conquer his foes as we have already seen somewhat pri- prior. Genesis 22 Verse 17 to 18, the Lord says to Abraham, Your seed shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So, in remembrance of this covenant God made with Abraham, as we see typified in Israel, This is fulfilled here in your hearing. The text says that the true messianic king has come, being of the physical seed of Abraham. So we can see that Messiah's kingdom is covenantal by nature. It has come about, you could say, by way of covenant. Then let us now consider just one more aspect of this covenantal nature. In the 110th Psalm, we read this in the third verse. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. This is a promise made by the Father to the Son, which is Christ. This shows that Christ has a people given to Him by the Father by way of covenant. And this people will serve Him willingly. Hence, what follows next in our text, verse 74 and 75, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. The end of the redemption is just that. A redeemed people serving the Lord according to the eternal covenant of redemption made within the Godhead that the Son would redeem a people for Himself and He would present them acceptable before the Father to render service unto Him. This is the end of the covenant. This is the end of the redemption that Christ would have a people redeemed of their sins and that they would serve Him forever. We saw in the public reading how even when the children of Israel had national sovereignty, which they looked at as an end to themselves, their hearts were wicked and they turned away from their God. But our Lord has made a covenant that says, I will write my laws upon their hearts. I will write my ways upon their minds and they will obey me. They will not go back to their wicked ways. How wonderful it is that we are saved out of the hand of our enemies to the end that we may be His and serve Him. We are liberated from sin that we may find our chief purpose and blessedness in worshiping and serving Him. And we are constrained to serve Him not by terror but by redeeming grace and his loving kindnesses he has commended towards us in the great salvation he has wrought out for us wherein the lord has taken away the judgments against you he has cleared away your enemies the king of israel the lord is in your midst a mighty one who will save he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Zephaniah 3, 15-17 That being said, how becoming it is then that the subjects of the kingdom swear their allegiance to this crown and freely give their hearts to Him who has inherited the throne. And who has inherited a people by covenantal right. We should serve him night and day. So I beseech you therefore brethren. By the mercies of God. That you offer up your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy acceptable unto God which is your reasonable service. So the celebration of Messiah's coming has led us to consider What is the essential nature of Messiah's kingdom? So now we arrive at the third and final portion of the text concerning the prophetic preparatory ministry of Messiah's precursor. The prophetic ministry of Messiah's precursor. We can break this final section up like this. First, the identity of the precursor or the forerunner. Second, his offices. Third, his mission And fourth, his message, or his prophesying itself. First, the identity, verse 76. And you, child. I find it interesting to say the least that Zechariah's firstborn son laid there a miracle of God a child had come out of a barren womb. And finally, when Zechariah's tongue is loosed and he speaks and prophesies, it takes him this long before he even, in a sense, acknowledges his his own son. Because he realizes this one points to something far greater. But the identity of the precursor here is the child of Zechariah. It is John. Now, I'm sure now that there was no kind of angelic aura about this babe, nor could his father yet perceive in him any qualities that would even seem to suggest that this child is going to be a most excellent prophet when he grows up. Nor was this recognition just a mere speculative fancy of Zacharias. But Zacharias believed God. So he knew that his son was a chosen vessel of the Lord, even as the angel Gabriel had said. Now, as a side note, parents, take this to heart. You have no idea how God may use your children one day. Though you love them, I know you do, yet perhaps now you may not be able to see any incredible qualities that impress your mind to suggest that they're going to be great in the kingdom of God one day well learn from this passage that God has a purpose for your children in the coming generation he surely does parents do not slight your children's potential but raise them up believing God even as Zechariah did believing God will glorify himself in them And then, children, do not slight the Lord. He has a purpose for you. Believe the gospel. Love and honor our Lord Jesus. Love and honor your parents. Secondly, we move on to see the twofold offices which John was to undertake. He is to be, first, the prophet of the Most High. Thus to fulfill one of the last words of the Old Testament. Malachi 3 verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger. Four hundred long years had passed since the last prophet stood in Israel. Four long, dark centuries had passed and God had been silent. But finally... After so long a famine of hearing and receiving the word of God, a prophet is raised up in Israel once more to declare, Thus saith the Lord. God has a word for this generation. And it comes through the mouth of his prophet, John the Baptist. Then, not only is he a prophet, John is to be also a harbinger. For you will go before the Lord. He is to be the one that the prophet said would immediately precede the coming of the Messiah. He is the one that is to make the people aware that the expected arrival of the Lord is imminent. He is that day star on the horizon that says the light is soon to come. Thirdly, what is his mission you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. His mission is to prepare the people to receive Messiah at his appearing. Now, the word prepare means to make ready, but here in the original, it especially regards internal fitness. It aims at the inner man, at the spirit, at the heart. John's mission was to make ready the hearts of the people to meet their God, the true Christ. For behold, He who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is His thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is His name, Amos 4. His mission is to prepare the people to meet this one. Your God is coming. Prepare the way. Finally, we are given some detail concerning John's prophesying. His message, I think, is threefold. It is first, a declaration of the forgiveness of sins. to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins. He publishes salvation for sinners. He uproots their pride and convinces them of their gross sin. But then He brings glad tidings that God offers pardon to any of them who will have it. He calls for repentance from dead works and a turning by faith to the living God. For God would have them to be reconciled unto Himself that He may deal kindly with them. He publishes remission of sins. And here we're getting to the very heart of the gospel, are we not? Secondly, we see the gospel that He makes known Excuse me, He makes known the source of the salvation that is in this gospel. The source of it being the tender mercy of our God. Verse 78. The literal translation is this. Not the tender mercy of our God, but the bowels of our God. This more vivid description illustrates more fully the passionate desire of God to save sinners. In beholding mankind in our miserable, lost and ruined condition, God's bowels were moved with compassion. The Word intimates deep, distressful pains, gripped God, for so much pity and sympathy for you in your wretched condition we do not serve an unfeeling god but a god who has brought salvation as a result of the of the moving of the most inward and intrinsic part of his being the deepest Love, incomprehensible, the deepest, most intrinsic, most incomprehensible pathos of the Holy Trinity brought this remission of sins for us. In light of that, forsake your own wretched righteousness. God pities the fool who rests in his own righteousness. But in the last day, there will be no more pity found, but only a fearful looking toward, looking forward to of judgment. So examine your heart and commit your soul unto this merciful and loving God who offers remission of sins freely by his grace according to the bowels of mercy. That are found in him. Then at last we see that John was to bear witness of the light to come. Let us read verse 78. Whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. To guide our feet into the way of peace. The sunrise shall visit us from on high. Now note the word visit appears here again. Revealing this to be a purposeful visit. Designed perfectly to address our great need. The sunrise here is without a doubt a reference to Malachi 4 verse 2. Quote, but for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Thus the close of the Old Testament leaves us looking for the dawn of a new day. Well, John is that day star that informs us that the light of day is just about to break forth over the horizon with health in his rays. This light is to be a revealing light, to give light to those who sit in darkness, which brings knowledge and dispels the darkness. He is to come and teach us the true knowledge of God. No man has known the Father, or no man has seen the Father, save his Son, who is in the bosom of his Father, and he has revealed him to us to dispel the ignorance. Of a mind which we have by our fallen nature. We do not know God. Though we know there is a God. We do not know Him rightly. But His Son is coming. And He reveals Him unto us. It is to be a reviving light. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. To bring the hope of life to those who sit in the shadow of death and dispel all despair. It is to be a guiding light. To lead us in the way of perfect peace and consummate blessedness. To lead us into communion with the God of peace. This day spring, this sunrise, shedding this trifecta of radiance abroad is no other than the Lord Jesus Christ, that holy thing in the womb of the virgin, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of God, inheritor of all, blessed forever. Amen. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So, we see in this blessed prophecy, I believe much richness of Christ. So now I'd ask you to think personally and reflect. Ask yourselves honestly these questions. Can you rejoice in your heart so much at the coming of the Messiah? Now many people around here certainly get happy around Christmas time. It's the jolly time of year. But I'm not saying do you rejoice because you see a little infant laying in a manger. Do you rejoice truly in your heart that God has left his throne in glory and robed himself in flesh, has taken upon himself the likeness of sinful man, and has walked out a perfect life of obedience, every single step being an indictment against our humanity? Do you revel in the light that Christ has come to reveal? Do you know anything of turning from the darkness of your ways to the light that has been shed abroad in Christ? I trust most of us do. But there may be some here who do not. Ask yourselves these questions. Do you understand what it means to be bound by covenantal blood to the service of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Is this the gospel that you believe? That our sins are freely forgiven, not by works of our own righteousness, but by God's grace He has saved us. If we do, I trust we know of the hope it brings. That it dispels darkness. Let us pray.